Hello everyone, my name is Cliff Duvinois, and after 20 years I've returned to my native Michigan and in my quest to reconnect with our great state, I want to talk to the leaders that are behind Michigan's top destinations. I'm going to learn more about them and the great experiences they and their team provide all of us Michiganders, and perhaps I'll learn a few things along the way. Welcome to the Call of Leadership podcast. Hello everyone, and for today's show... There probably isn't a man on the planet, including yours truly, who hasn't dreamed of owning a classic car. Something that you take out on those really sunny days, you cruise around town, you got your radio playing, you got the cutie sitting next to you in the car. Well, Michigan's place in the automotive history, it's not surprising that a car museum was to was created to showcase these beautiful classic cars. And that's where today's guest comes in. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show, the Director of Commercial Operations for the Gilmore Car Museum, Ken Fashon. Ken, how are you? Great, thank you, Cliff. Thanks so much for having me on today. Excellent. So tell us a little bit about where you're from. Where did you grow up? Well, I'm originally from Amherst, Massachusetts. And, and then our family had a a fairly primitive camp up on a lake in New Hampshire. And so I spent uh, summers there right up until I was 19. We did move to Indiana and went to school there and uh, also went to Purdue University there. And that's when I first fell in love with Pure Michigan. Really? What was it about Pure Michigan that made you fall in love? Well, it's, you know, if you've been down to the around Lafayette, Indiana, it's pretty flat. We were used to mountains and, and the beauty of New England. And when we came up here, it really reminded us of uh, Maine and in parts of uh, New Hampshire with the rolling hills, the crystal clear lakes, the ski resorts. And so we just pretty much fell in love with, you know, at a young, when I was at a young age, because I was a love to ski. And so we'd bring the whole family up here and have some wonderful, wonderful, memorable family trips and times in, in Michigan. Excellent. Now, where did you wind up going to college at? I went to Purdue University and double, I majored in restaurant hotel management and foreign language. And it, you know, at the time and today, it's still one of the top uh, schools for restaurant, hotel, and institutional management. What was it about getting into the, you know, the restaurant hotel business that, that appealed to you? I started cooking when I was probably around six. My mom didn't like making salads. So I started with salads and graduated to meatloaf and, and just found I had a real love for serving, serving and preparing meals, as well as uh, a real love for the whole hospitality industry. When I was, I think, 11 years old, our, our folks took me and my little brother on a trip across the country. And we were in San Francisco. We'd been staying in hotels and eating and great meals and going, seeing attractions and just having a wonderful time. And we were at Fisherman's Wharf at a restaurant called Aliotos and nice. very formal. And I remember the tuxedo waiter coming over and said, uh, little boy, would you like to see the, the children's menu? And I said, no, I would like, I would prefer the adult menu, please. <laughs> I kind of looked at my mom and I said, yeah, and she said, bring him what he wants. And so when I looked at the menu and I'm, you know, looking out the window at the Golden Gate Bridge and the sun sparkling off the water and I thought, wow, this is really a cool thing. And I ordered abalone steak 
And the waiter was mortified. He couldn't believe that I was ordering something like that when he says, are you sure you don't want a little boy a hamburger or a hot dog? I said, no, sir, please bring me the abalone steak. (laughs) I ate that and it just, here I was this kind of precocious 10 or 11 year old. And I remember turning to my folks and saying, when I grow up, I want to be in the hotel and restaurant business. And I've never looked back. (laughs) Sweet. So after, you know, you graduated from college, where, where did you wind up? Where did you wind up working for? Where did you wind up going? Well, I actually started the cooperative education program at Purdue University in consumer family sciences, which was the school of where the school of restaurant hotel management was. And I had looked at Marriott, Hilton and Hyatt. And I really felt that Hyatt was the most innovative with the architecture of the hotels plus with food and beverage. And so Uh, My parents brought me up to Chicago and I interviewed to uh, be the first student in this program where you worked a semester, went to school semester, worked a semester and, and they hired me. And so I had a wonderful time. I was able to test out of a lot of classes because of my work experience at the Hyatt Regency Chicago. Sweet. And it was such a good gig for me. My boss told me he wanted me to take a year off and be part of the food and beverage opening team for the new tower. So that Hyatt went from being over a thousand rooms to over 2000 rooms. And that was a pretty incredible experience. And I still have many, many friends to this day from that I worked with there or that I worked for with Hyatt. And so it was a great experience. Excellent. And now you have, so you've got your career at the Hyatt, you're doing some really cool things. What was it that brought you back to Michigan? Well, I actually, my Hyatt, you know, I left, I worked at both the Hyatt Regency Chicago and the Hyatt Lincolnwood, and my GM in Hyatt Lincolnwood was John Pritzker um, of the Pritzker family that owns Hyatt. And he left to go open the Hyatt Long Beach and called me up and said, I want you to be, come out here and be part of my team. And so I went to Long Beach and then he John Pritzker left and went to San Francisco and Barcadero, and he brought me up to that. And then I made the decision to actually leave Hyatt and go to, I went to Palm Springs and worked for two of, as a director at two of the large resorts there. Nice. And opened the Desert Conference Center and the Palm Springs Convention Center. From there, went to the Pasadena Convention and Visitors Bureau as director of sales. And then from Pasadena, ended up coming back to Michigan and as executive director of Discover Kalamazoo, the destination marketing organization for Kalamazoo County. And then I was vice president of the Chamber uh, of Commerce as well. It's kind of a dual dual role. And uh, so fell in love with, back in love with Pure Michigan all over again. And got to see some great friends of like Dave Lorenz with, with that you've talked to recently as well with Travel Michigan and and just fell in love with it. and. And uh, from there, Cliff, I had an opportunity to go out and build another destination marketing organization from the ground up in Sonoma County, California, and north of San Francisco in wine country. And so I was there for 12 years, but we, the pullback to Michigan happened (laughs) in 08 because we actually bought a second home here. And people in California, as you know, being a former California resident for what, 22 years, I think? Yes. Yeah. You know, people in California would look at us funny when I'd say, well, we're going to Mi- to Michigan for vacation or holiday. And they, 
they couldn't quite figure it out. But once people came to visit us, they realized, wow, this is really a special, special place. It really is. And my experience is being out there, you're talking to people from different states. Michigan is one of those unique states where when people go on vacation, they go on vacation in Michigan. So when I was in Southern California, for instance, someone talked about going on vacation. It was they were heading to Arizona. They were going to go to Las Vegas. Most people went to Hawaii. I myself, when I went on vacation, I either came back to Michigan uh, to visit with friends and family or I was on a plane to Europe. One of the two. I never went. I never went on vacation in California. And there's probably a lot of beautiful places in California I just never saw during my time there. So I totally get what you're saying. Yeah, and, and it, California has a lot to offer, but also, you know, I think you reach a point where, especially, it has been so stressful for many of our friends that are still living there, due to the the drought, the fires, the mudslides. You know, and all of that has really wreaked havoc on the economy in many different areas there, especially the fires, you know. So I, I you know, we we loved, 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 loved the t- time we spent in California. But Michigan was always just a wonderful retreat and a great place to come. We, we you know, we call Michigan our happy place. I kind of like that. I think we should put that on a T-shirt. <laughs> yes, probably be a, a Big seller. Well, you know, the other, <laughs> the other happy place that I call is is Gilmore Car Museum. And it is just such a community and state treasure and treasure for this country. It is a spectacular place. And my love affair with cars started at a very early age. My first car was a 1959 Cadillac convertible that I nice. rescued from a barnyard and worked as a waiter to earn enough money to slowly restore it to the point where I was able to take the grand marshal of the Christmas parade in the car and proudly drove it down Main Street in Lafayette on a very cold December, Indiana winter day. <laughs> but the Gilmore is definitely, it's just an amazing place. We, we have over 90 acres, over 20 buildings. So during this pandemic, we are kind of the perfect spot to be able to socially distance because what is six feet but the width of a car? Right. So plus having all of the outside area where we've had, we've been able to hold a limited attendance and limited hour events and car shows over since July. And we just we have a really our last event of the season is happening tonight. And that's our weekly Wednesday cruise in where we have live bands and, and our grill, which we call the grill more is open serving Duesenbergers and, and uh, Lincoln links and, and our diner, our 1941 diners open serving uh, all made from scratch, authentic 1940s diner food. And so all of that happened is happening tonight. And we've been able to, We've had a great group of car enthusiasts that are very respectful of the mask on outdoor areas and, and of course, mask on inside. So we've been able to actually, you know, after we were closed for 89 days, we've been able to get reopened in early June. And it's it's been uh, a challenging year, but it's been a, a good process for us to go through. And, and we're just delighted. And there's a lot, we've, we have new exhibits too. I should probably wait and ask me a question. I'm, 
I'm just, I get excited when I talk about the Gilmore Car Museum. No, and I, I totally get your excitement because, you know, I'm, I, I just to take a quick step back, I, I love that show, Counting Cars on TV. And, you know, I, you know, I'm dreaming of the day where I can actually go out and buy my own classic car. So, you know, running across you guys out there is just, you know, it's, it's awesome. It's great because, you know, I can see them all. The question I got for you is, how did you wind up getting involved with the Gil Gilmore Car Museum? Well, when we moved back to Michigan permanently, we were lucky enough, we had found a really nice piece of property on a lake and spent about a year or so designing a home. And so, you know, when you when you sell a house in California, as you probably recall, it's it ends up being a pretty good thing to move back to Michigan. <laughs> yes, it does. And so the first thing I did, because I fell in love with the museum back in the about, gosh, probably, I think it was 2002. And so first thing I did was go there and say, look, I, I want to be involved. So I started as a docent and worked as a docent and an event volunteer and car show volunteer and for about a year and a half. And we had a reorganization at the museum because we've got such incredible growth happening even during the, these challenging times. And so I was able, <laughs> the irony, Cliff, is they brought me in to, to build business and improve all of the revenues for the organization on March 9th. And on March 15th, we closed for oh. 89 days. <laughs> but we Yikes. worked from home. We came up with, we reinvented ourselves. We reinvented our car shows and events. We created drive-in concerts. We were the first in Michigan to do a drive-in concert Sweet. as part of our community comeback event. We did drive-in high school graduations for those poor kids that missed sports, missed their friends, missed prom. We were They were able to come, the Delton Kellogg School was able to come to the museum and have their drive-in graduation safely. We even did drive-in, we've done drive-in memorial services because many of the churches can't hold them. And it was, uh, you know, a pretty emotional way for people to connect um, with each other. So, and we've done, we did a, another concert on 9-11. Both of our drive-in concerts were sold out and we had a third uh, bluegrass concert that happened on September 19th. So we're looking to do a series that's kind of opened the door for us because we're, very, you know, we know how to do car shows. We know how to do events and we have a ballroom at the Gilmore Car Museum where uh, we do indoor and outdoor weddings, obviously now with limited capacity indoors. So the whole idea of being able to safely have events and everything is been also a big accomplishment for our team and our members this year. Sure. Let's take a step back and talk to me a little bit about the history of the Gilmore Car Museum. When was it founded? Who founded it? Why were they crazy enough to do it? <laughs> well, it's a great it's a great car a story about car love. Donald Gilmore was the chairman of the board at well it was Upjohn now off uh, then Pharmacia now Pfizer, and he retired in 1961, and uh, he came and spent some time at home. And after a few months, his wife Genevieve decided that he really needed to have a hobby, being so busy. So she went and bought him a 1920 Pierce Arrow seven passenger touring car. 
And he set up a little tent in his driveway and had his friends come over and started learning how to restore this car. And believe it or not, that car sits, the car that started it all sits in our Pierce Arrow Museum uh, on the campus. Sweet. So he started and he, you know, had this, this property, which had a farmhouse and a couple barns on it. And so then as his collection expanded, he built what is known as the carriage house on the campus, which is built like a red barn with a silo. And then the Knicks, he realized I'm running out of room. I've got to get another barn. So he found our Campania barn and it was on a spearmint farm out near Fenville. And they made, they supplied Wrigley's chewing gum with spearmint. And so this is a big, beautiful four-story uh, barn that was used to harvest and store spearmint. And he had, he bought the barn and paid to have it disassembled and labeled all the parts like a giant erector set Whoa. back and, and built on the property. And so at this point, he had 57 cars right around 1966. And once again, his wife, Genevieve, stepped in and she said, Don, why don't you open this up and share it with people? You know, you know, and so that's the museum first opened for business in 1966. Now, our chair of our board of trustees is the grandson of Don Gilmore, Bill Parfit, and he has had this incredible vision for the property and the museum ever since. And it has grown and expanded. We now have seven partner museums there. Nice. Uh, you know, which include Cadillac LaSalle, Lincoln, Ford Model A, Franklin, the first air-cooled engine. Pierce Arrow Museum and the Classic Car Club of America Museum. And our new partner that's moving in in a month and a half is the Museum of the Horseless Carriage. And that is cars from the brass era, the late 1800s to about 1916. Nice. Nice. Oh my God. That sounds absolutely beautiful. And you said how how big is how big is the facility there? Um, well, we have over 20 buildings and it's we have about over well well over two hundred thousand square feet, and actually the Classic Car Club of America Museum is under construction right now. They're adding another ten thousand square feet that'll be completed in December, with their grand opening for the the museum in April. Once they get all of they're re, redesigning the whole facility, and it's one of our largest partner museums as well. And then. We have, like I said, 90 acres, some key anchor buildings around the property. I mean, the property is just beautifully landscaped. We do, we offer a whole bunch of different types of services. I mentioned we have a 1941 Blue Moon Diner that it was moved from Connecticut to here. And it serves, it's open uh, right now through, through November 30th. And then we have a cafe that is inside the main heritage hall that will open as of December 1st to March 31st. So, plus we have this beautiful 1930s Shell gas station that is a complete functioning gas station of the era. And that's a really cool photo op for car enthusiasts that come to the museum for any number of our car shows or events. Yeah, I get what you're saying about the old style gas stations that show American pickers on there. They are all the time out there picking parts for these old gas stations and it seems like a lot of car enthusiasts or even hobbyists are very interested in recreating these old style gas stations yeah they are and and the, we had one built on our campus 
It is a shell station from the early 20th century, and it's fully functioning, and kids can even jump up and down on the black tube to make the bell ring, you know, which we <laughs> call the attendant out. And and I, you know, it, it's just a beautiful, beautiful facility that is a really popular photo op for many of our car enthusiasts that come to our Wednesday night cruise-ins or car show or car club event at the, at the museum as well. So how many cars do you have there on site? We have about 400 that are out in all the different galleries. And our galleries are actually done primarily by decade. Our main gallery features now a, a beautiful exhibit, a legendary Packard from light bulbs to luxury automobiles. Now, in addition to all the different galleries that we have, including our 50s, 60s, 30s, 40s, muscle car. There is, we have what we call our, our storage vaults that are large red barns as well. And in there, we have approximately 150 cars that we will use to rotate out through periodically through exhibits. So maybe you came to the museum two weeks ago and you come back and there's going to be you know, when I walked around the facility today, there were three new cars that were in, in several of the galleries that just had been put in within the last few days. Sweet. So now I got to ask you this question and I'm going to put you on the spot. They walk up to you and they say, Ken, you can have any car under the facility that you want. Here's the keys. Which one would you take? Well, I'm... I guess I kind of feel nostalgic. We have a 1959 Cadillac limousine that was the limousine for Upjohn that Mr. Gilmore rode around in when he was chairman of the board and, and president CEO. And I, we had it out on the property for a special event for America's Automotive Trust. And I got to hop in it and drive it back to our storage barn. And I got in that car, Cliff, and I had this flashback of you know my first car and how it just felt so familiar and so wonderful and and I've long been I had I've had several other 59 Cadillacs as well so I that car's really special and the history that it has but I wouldn't want to take it away from the museum but that was just a recent experience that came to mind and you know there's We've really focused on the, sto the storytelling that the American car does. We do have a few foreign cars in the Classic Car Club of America Museum. And then we have a couple Rolls Royces on display with our Duesenbergs. And there's just so many really cool cars. It's, it's hard to pick, but just my gut is that 59 Cadillac limousine. Sweet. Sweet. Okay. So you got good taste. I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's talk, talk about here for a second. So let's say somebody is going to be coming out. They, they want to check out, they want to check out the Gilmore car museum. They want to take a day and head on over there. What would be, what would be your top three recommendations for thing for people to see when they come to your facility? Well, we, I, I can kind of run through like maybe our top five cars, but really pretty outstanding. We have a 1929 dual cowl Phaeton Duesenberg. And this is a car that E.L. Cord and the Duesenberg brothers partnered Fred Nagy to create right about 1928. And these cars were so fast. They came with a 265 horsepower engine or 320 horsepower if they were supercharged. And they were handmade 
incredibly expensive in 1929. This car cost $20,000, which at that time was the equal to 24 Ford Model A's and three or four American homes. So this car is definitely one of our top vehicles. And then right across from it, we have a new uh, car that was donated to the museum, a new old car. It's a Smithsonian worthy. It's a 1902 Thomas. Whoa. And this car spent most of its life on a small island off the coast of Maine. So it only has no odometers in 1902, but it only has very few miles on it. It also is only one of two 1902 Thomases left in the world. And it is the finest pre-1905 unrestored all original car on the planet. It literally has all, the only thing that's been changed in this car since 1902 is the fluids and the tires. <laughs> nice. So then also at half, has to be near the top of the list is our Tucker, 1948 Tucker and Waltz Blue. It is the lowest mileage Tucker in existence with just 61 miles on it. Huh. And uh, Preston Tucker really created a beautiful car. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to make too many of them because the big three were felt pretty threatened by it and pretty much put him out of business. But that's a really special car. And a lot of people come in just to see that car. Another, we have a pretty spectacular Columbia. Most people don't realize that electric cars were made in the early 1900s. And we have a five-passenger pa touring all-electric Columbia that is just an outstanding representation. And that's from 1906. And that car is going to be going to Amelia Island Concours coming up. And then another one of my favorites is we have in our main gallery a special exhibit to Packards. And there's a 1908 Packard Model 30 runabout that Don and Genevieve Gilmore bought. It was one of the, another one of the first cars they bought in the 60s. And their good friend, Walt Disney, when he came out to the museum to visit, this is the car that, that Don drove him around in. And we do have on the campus the only movie set that Walt Disney ever let leave the studio in our pedal car barn. And that's the movie set from the Nomobile, including the 1930 Rolls-Royce from the movie. Nice. So, yeah. So those are a few, you know, if you're into muscle cars in our muscle car gallery, we have a 1967 Shelby uh, GT500 prototype. And this car has an amazing story. It was used in a correctional facilities uh, training for uh, mechanics and then junked. And the gentleman found it in a junkyard and spent 10 years restoring it. This car is one of one with Carol Shelby being, you know, next to Henry Ford, probably one of the most popular, well-known people affiliated with automobiles in the world. Yeah. And I think that movie that just recently came out within the past few years, uh, really solidified his place in modern people's right. thinking. Right, Ford, so. Ford versus Ferrari, yep. Yeah. And then another, you know, because the brass era is so important, and those are the cars from late 1800s to 1916, we have a replica of the very first car in 1886, Benz. And the story about how Bertha Benz funded her husband, Carl Benz, passion to build what he looked at as an alternative to pedaling a bicycle. And the fact that, that he built this car in 1886 and then couldn't figure out how to market it. And two years later, his wife, Bertha, loaded her two small sons into the front of this thing 
and dr- took off on a trip without even telling Carl, her husband, <laughs> uh, across Germany, 66 mile trip. Now remember, there's no gas stations. <laughs> Nobody has seen this, this, this crazy thing moving and sputtering. And, you know, they thought it might be witchcraft or something. And, <laughs> and so Bertha had to stop at apothecary shops to get fuel. And she at one point used her hat pin to uh, clear a fuel line. And she was pretty resourceful, used her garter belt to, you know, do another repair on the car. And uh, so this, it's a great, great story. And it is, all of our cars run and are functional, even the 1886 Benz. And so the other fun thing that we have, you know, and we're looking forward to being able to do again once we're through this pandemic is we have a program called Ride the Classics at the museum where you can come and pick from about six or seven classic cars from our collection that will take you out for rides around the campus. We have over three miles of uh, paved roads on our historic campus. So that's another really cool thing to be able to do. Wow. I bet you that's insanely popular. Well, not this year. We can't do Obviously, it. Obviously, yeah. But yes, in past years, and, and yes, it's been a very popular thing for people to do. They get the biggest kick, and we have everything from cars from the 20s up to cars from the 60s that we put out there. Oh, that's that's totally awesome. And over the next you know couple months, talk to us a little bit about what, what kind of an exhibit, you know, what kind of exhibits do you have that are that are going on that people might be interested in taking a look at? Yeah, we have a new exhibit that opened last month for the movie American Graffiti. And the star of the movie was the 1958 Chevy Impala that Ron Howard drove in the movie. Now, this was this was a movie that put many actors that are, you know, became A-list actors on up on the screen for the first time. And George Lucas. Um, yeah, and George Lucas and uh, Francis Ford Coppola. Yes. Because George Lucas wrote the story about growing up in 1962 in the town of Modesto, California. And he wanted to film it there, but they couldn't, they couldn't get all, everything they needed. So they actually went to Petaluma in Sonoma County, just north of San Francisco and filmed it there. But it was people like Harrison Ford, Suzanne Summers, and just a slew of folks that were in this movie, Ron Howard, as I mentioned. And it really is a coming of age film. It's probably one of the best car films ever made. And they made it for well under a million dollars. It only cost seven hundred seventy-seven thousand, and from that, it's one of the the lar- best-grossing movies of all time. Plus, George Lucas never would have gone on to make Star Wars, and Coppola would not have gone on to make Tucker or The Godfather. Yep. So it really was a, a significant uh, piece of film, and so we have. A whole exhibit. You'll walk in and you'll hear the jukebox playing songs from 1962 with the diner table, and and then you also have, of course, the the 58 Chevy Impala customized that Ron Howard drove in the movie, as well as several other cars that are Edsel 56 T Bird, Milder Clone Coupe, and then some hot rods too, that were part of that whole era of the late 50s and early 60s. So that's a fun exhibit. Now, in our Ford Model A Museum, we have a new exhibit of Model A first responders. So you'll go in there, you'll see an ambulance, you'll see that is so cool. Fire truck, a paddy wagon, a police car, as well as every Model A possible. 
In the Cadillac LaSalle Museum, we have a new exhibit that just opened last week called Early Eldorados. So it's beautiful Eldorados from starting with the first Eldorado in 1953, right through 1958, as well as we have some more modern Eldorados from 1970, 1976, and 1978 as well in that, in that facility. And we do have a special exhibit in our carriage house that will be here for the month of November that's called Women Who Motor. And it celebrates famous women that have been drivers of cars, designers of cars, cars that were designed for women, and some early automotive pioneers in, that were women in the automotive industry. So that there's quite a bit to be able to come and, and see and connect with. And we are, we do have plans to, we're looking at building a new muscle car museum, as well as obviously I mentioned the museum, the horseless carriage will be coming in a couple of years. They're going to move into our steam barn for the next couple of years. And yeah, so there's a lot to come and see and, and celebrate at North America's largest car museum. That's awesome. And if if anybody's listening to this episode, they want to, you know, connect with you or you know learn more about the museum, maybe even stop by to visit, what would be the best way for them to do that? Well, we you can go to gilmorecarmuseum.org and you can get a list of, you know, you'll get all the information on there. Uh, also, you can connect with us on Facebook and Instagram as well. We have a pretty uh, pretty uh, strong social media reach. And, and, you know, that's one good thing, but obviously, you know, pick up the phone and call us and ask us questions. We have, you know, we have a full research library on, on the, on the campus, as well as about 180 dedicated volunteers. Sweet. And for our audience, we will make sure to have those links in the show notes down below. Ken, it's been great having you on the show today. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk with us. Well, Cliff, my pleasure. And I, once again, you're going to get a great tour. So <laughs> you might be able to talk more about it after you come out and, and I give you my special VIP tour. Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. And I want to make sure that, that I give you guys a lot of love online too. So we're definitely going to make that happen. So thanks again. Well, thank you, Cliff. It's been a pleasure. Hey, everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, then subscribe to our email newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get new episode announcements. You'll get all kinds of great behind the scenes information on upcoming guests. Plus, you'll receive special offers from our guests and partners that you can only get through the email newsletter. Subscribing is quick, easy, and best of all, it is free. Just go to callofleadership.com email, type in your email address, and you're done. Once again, that's callofleadership.com email. I'll catch you in the next episode. Thank you.